You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. When they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Hmm, I want to read that again. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. But the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Areva, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. <coughs> now, would you join me in prayer? <coughs> Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, and God, we just ask that your spirit would be free to move in our midst here. Um, God, that you would remove any barriers uh, that would seek to stop us from hearing from you. Um, I pray that you would come and do uh, things that only you can do in our midst. pray that you would come and uh, 
bind up the brokenhearted, that you would uh, in, encourage um, the depressed, that you would strengthen the weak, uh, that you would call to obedience those of us that are walking in rebellion, and that you would come and fill us with your spirit and turn our hearts to you. Um, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would help us to uh, begin here in this passage and that you would, um, through your word, uh, that you would help our hearts to exult in our true Joshua, who is Jesus. God, I pray that you would do that and more. I trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> in these verses um, that we uh, just read, uh, simply come to us uh, right on the heels of uh, what uh, Joe Nelson preached last week. Um, come on the heels of chapter 2, uh, where you have two spies uh, that Joshua sends into Jericho, right? Uh, that's chapter 2. Um, and as they come back, they come back and they give a report. Um, but right before that report, you might remember that Joshua has sent these spies into Jericho to check it out. So he's, he's basically sent spies deep into enemy territory. And as they go there, they run into this prostitute named Rahab. Um, as Pastor Joe uh, pointed out last week, she was very much an unlikely servant, right? This is, a, this is not a woman that uh, you or I might immediately choose um, to do the work of the Lord, and I would imagine that uh, many of us know what it's like to feel like, man, I just don't know why the Lord would even come and use me in a powerful way in the kingdom. And so that story that, uh, that Joe preached last week, just very powerful reminder that God does use unlikely people for his work here on earth. So you have the spies, they go into Jericho to check it out. They're spying it out, kind of like James Bond. And then they meet Rahab, um, and, and then as they leave there, they come back to Joshua. And at the very end of Joshua chapter 2, uh, those two spies give this report. You might reference this in your Bible. Um, verse 24 of chapter 2, the spies tell Joshua this. They say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. I just think about that phrase for a minute. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And then he follows that up with, and also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away because of this. It reminds me of VeggieTales. This is not a child's story. Um, by any means, it reminds me of VeggieTales. It has something to do with like a chocolate bunny who gets melted or something along those lines. You might remember that. But this is actually a really real story, Right? What we see in this story, uh, and especially this report from the spies, is this, this truth that, that God is about to do what appears to be impossible. Okay? He's about to do what appears to be impossible. So you've got the question on the screen in front of you. I want you to think about this for a minute. What, what do you believe is impossible? What, what have you um, kind of made an agreement with that you believe is impossible. And that might be easy, I think, uh, for most of us maybe uh, in the room to proclaim at least verbally that nothing is impossible with God, right? 
at least at the bare minimum, we at least know that's the right answer that we should give. Nothing is impossible with God. A greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, right? So goes the common response. It's biblical. It's Christian. It's the right response for sure. The Bible actually says this. So it's true for sure. Those words, uh, I think, are probably a lot easier to proclaim with our lips uh, than they are to believe with our hearts and minds. Would you agree with me on that? Easier to proclaim uh, than it would be to believe. I think most of us, maybe all of us in this room, if we're willing to be honest, have probably faced enough disappointment in this life um, to probably admit that there are things in our lives that we struggle to believe that God is actually able to overcome. Um, We experience the pain of death, uh, the sting of addiction, um, maybe the burn of broken relationships, uh, maybe the fiery uh, temptation of our ongoing struggle with secret sin, um, shortcomings, inadequacies, fears, worries, doubts, failures. I mean, the list of the impossibilities that we face each and every day is probably seemingly endless for most of us if we stop long enough um, to give it some time. The truth of this passage is that God is the God of the impossible. That's the truth of this passage. I don't know if that fires any of you up deep down inside. To know that God is the God of the impossible. I think when you believe that, it's what helps you to face the impossibilities of your life. Right? Like What we see here in the text is that Israel is preparing to face the impossible. Now, I think it probably seems much easier um, at times, at least I've experienced this, in my life it seems much easier at times. Rather than facing the impossible, um, I, might, I might be tempted to take the path of least resistance. Anybody there with me? Okay, be tempted to take the, the path of least Resistance. I mean, there's times when I really love a good challenge. Um, in fact, that's kind of part of the way I'm wired. I, part of the way I'm wired is I kind of see the world is coming against me, and so I'm a fighter. Um, but there are times where I want to take that path of least resistance. It seems easier to uh, run and hide and maybe duck and cover uh, when the hailstorm of impossibility looming in my life, when a particular issue in my marriage surfaces, right, or, uh, or when a certain struggle in parenting comes up again, uh, when, when an ongoing struggle with sin um, seems like it's getting the best of me again, in those moments, um, sometimes seems easier uh, to, to just simply maybe change the subject, Right? rather than face the impossible problem that I've tasted failure in time and time again. Anybody relate with me on that? Okay, all right. It's true um, that we need to be wise in picking and choosing the battles that we fight, right? 
Like we're not called to uh, be waging war on every front to the extent that we don't take any ground at all because we are spread way too thin. That's not the calling either. Uh, we are definitely called to wage the good warfare that, that Paul encourages Timothy to wage. I think it looks like one battle at a time so that we can win the war. Um, so, so, so I'm building two categories. On the one hand, you have avoidance, which isn't the right pathway because if you just avoid the battles and avoid the war, you're not fighting anything. You're never going to win nothing, right? And, but on the other hand, you can't always be at war either fighting every single battle that comes your way. There's got to be some wisdom and some discernment in regards to what God has actually called me to fight for right now, right? Simply must prepare to face the impossible. This is what Joshua and the nation of Israel do in the first six verses. They prepare to face the impossible. They leave the city that they're in, the city of Shittim, and they come to the banks of the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River is all that separates them from walking into the promised land, right? I want you to notice um, something about the Jordan River. Now, this river is overflowing its banks, according to verse 15. Does that seem to strike any of you? The Jordan River is overflowing its banks. See, God didn't wait for summertime to bring His people into their inheritance when the river would have been naturally dried up. Ever experienced this in your life? He brought them to the edge of their inheritance when it seemed to be the most impossible to lay hold of. When you think about your journey, I mean, isn't it the things that are the most painful and the hardest? Isn't it in those seasons where God seems to show up in the most miraculous of ways? I mean, you don't, we don't gain something uh, by walking in uh, easiness. That's never been the story throughout the Bible. Doesn't that sound like God? He brought them to the edge of their inheritance when it seemed to be the most impossible to lay hold of. Like, ask yourself this question, why do we often lose heart when facing impossible circumstances? Why? What does that say about our hearts? Isn't it true that God grows and strengthens our faith in the most difficult of circumstances? Isn't it, isn't it true that the character of Christ is grown in us through our most painful of experiences? If God removed, think about this, if God removed every area of suffering and difficulty and impossibility from our lives, what would the outcome be? If God just took all the hardship and the difficulty out of your life, what would the outcome be in your life? But could it be true that the Lord actually allows some impossible circumstances to remain in our lives so that our hunger and our thirst for heaven would deepen? Like, think about this. Wouldn't you just get satisfied with the things of this earth, if God removed every impossible earthly thing? 
wouldn't you just get satisfied with everything you could get here if he removed all the impossibilities from your life? It's another observation I think we should make in the text too. If you look at verses 2 through 6, you should notice that the Levites, uh, the Levites are spiritual leaders um, who are leading Israel. And those, those Levites, they command the people to follow the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, there's something really significant about this. They command the people to follow the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's presence and God's word. You might write that down. This is God's presence and God's word. The Ark of the Covenant, that's, that's the representation. And they're to follow God's presence and God's word when they see it moving. Right? You're going to visually see the presence of God and the Word of God move in the Ark of the Covenant. But they're not supposed to follow it too closely. If they follow it too closely, they might miss the direction that God is going. Now, I think there's an underlying thing here, too, that no one can come close to God without a mediator. I do think that there might be an application to those of us who are more brainiacs, maybe like myself, like to study, love my books. How easy can it be for all of us even to get to a point to where we are so enamored with theology to the extent that we miss the direction that God's presence and God's word is actually moving. It's not that we shouldn't live our lives with our noses in God's Word, because we should. Should not be to the extent that we miss the direction that God's Word and God's presence in go- is going. Can I just ask you, like, when was the last time that you just sensed, knew, experienced, heard God's Word, God's presence moving forward in your life? truth of this is that uh, the Israelites are to follow the presence and the word of God. And they're to follow only after a waiting period of three days. Don't miss that. They waited on the banks of the river for three days before moving forward. Now, I understand that three days to us probably doesn't sound like a long time, especially if you've waited for something and struggled with something for a lot longer than three days, because that feels like an eternity. But I would imagine uh, for the Israelites, those three days might have felt like a lifetime. Standing on the edge of the banks, if you can envision this, the promised land is right there, and the only thing that is separating them is this stinking river that is overflowing the banks. The whole thing appears to be impossible to them. But maybe that's exactly what Israel needed. Maybe that's exactly what we need. Maybe they, maybe we need to slow down long enough at times to simply admit the impossible things that gnaw on our hope so that we can prepare to walk by faith. What do you think about that? When was the last time you stopped long enough to assess? And to think about the impossible things that gnaw on your hope so that you can prepare to walk by faith. Joshua tells the Israelites to prepare themselves. How? How are they going to prepare themselves? If you look back at 
your text, you find that they are to prepare themselves by devoting themselves. The word that they, he uses here is consecrate. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Here's the thing. There, there can be no obedience to the Lord's commands without first being devoted to the Lord. There can be no obedience to the Lord's commands without first being devoted to the Lord. We prepare to face the impossible by keeping our eyes on God. But by devoting ourselves to God and by stepping out in faithful obedience. You'll never step out in faith-filled obedience to God's commands in your life if you're not first consecrated and devoted to Him. And if your eyes aren't locked on Him completely. So just consider with me the few things in our lives that might distract us from being devoted completely to the Lord and from having our eyes locked on the Lord. What is that in your life that has maybe distracted you from a wholehearted commitment and a wholehearted focus on the Word of God and the presence of God moving in front of you as you follow? second thing that I see uh, in our passage is um, that the Israelites are given an opportunity here to understand the Lord in the midst of impossibility. I think in the midst of impossibility, when we face things that are hard, we face suffering, we face difficulty, those are times when I think it's easy for us to say, I just don't understand what the Lord is up to, right? Anybody there? Really don't understand what the Lord is up to here. I think that's natural, and I think that's good. I also think it's um, interesting in the Christian culture that we are much more of a culture that loves to have all the answers rather than asking the right questions. Um, it's, it's like as soon as you start following Jesus, somehow now you've got to have all the right answers. Right? And the whole world around you is wrong because they don't read the Bible or don't believe in Jesus, so on and so forth. And so it, it kind of pits us in this really interesting, sinful place of pride. I, I, I'm not going to argue that, that we should all walk around just saying, well, I don't know either. I mean, we're not going to be agnostic. Um, I also don't think we should be Gnostic, thinking that we just have all this higher knowledge and higher understanding either. It is true. Um, God's ways are, are far above my ability to understand. Agreed? Everybody agree? God's ways are far above my ability to understand. Uh, but, but that truth, um, that, that truth doesn't mean that I should give up on striving to understand Him. Let me illustrate it this way. Can you, can you imagine a, a marriage where you've got a man and a woman and they're married and at some point, whether that's like the day after they get married or 20 years or 50 years after they get married, somewhere in there, one spouse just looks at the other one and just goes, you are far too complicated for me to understand. I'm not even going to try anymore. We would all go, that's stupid. <laughs> like, Where's that going to get you? It's not going to get you a healthy marriage, right? But as we make fun and as we joke, let's all just admit that if we've been married, or if we've had parents who are married, we've walked in that place for a while, haven't we? Like, I just do not flip and get you whatsoever, so stay on your side of the room. Right? And, and we stop trying. And then at some point, we wake up in bed next to somebody and we just go, I'm not even sure if I know you. 
And then what do you got to do? You've got to strive to get to know the person that you haven't tried to get to know for so long. So I think it's the same with the Lord. I think oftentimes because we know that we cannot understand all of who God is and all of what God has in mind or has intended for a season, I think we just kind of play the passive way out and we just kind of tap out, right? I still read my Bible devotions every day, still say bedtime prayers with the kids, but, but I've given up on a wholehearted striving after understanding the Lord and asking and begging Him through prayer to please come and restore my soul and to help me to know you. Just know about you, Lord, but to know you. So can you imagine Israel here in this passage um, standing on the brink of laying hold of the promised land? Right? That they're standing on the edge of the river. They're, they're staring down the barrel of the most impossible thing they've probably witnessed in a while. You might remember this generation of people is a generation removed from the last generation who saw God do some really miraculous things like splitting uh, the Red Sea. These people weren't necessarily part of that. They're children and grandchildren of that generation, so they're removed. They'd heard about it, much like you and I hear about these powerful stories that God has done where God does step in and He allows boys to get tossed into fires and they don't get burned, right? And He splits the Red Sea and they escape the Egyptians and the stories go on and on and on. The story of Daniel getting tossed in a lion's den, right? And the lions don't eat him up. That's crazy stuff. Anybody experience anything like that in the last, I don't know, lifetime? In your lifetime, have you ever seen anything like that happen? These people are sitting in the same place you're sitting in this morning. They have not experienced the, 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 just the, the radical power of God saving them in a tangible and radical way. They're standing there on the edge of the Jordan River overflowing. Can you imagine if they just checked out? Like, well, God, I've heard those stories about everything you've done in the past, but I don't really understand your ways. Can't quite figure out why you would want to lead people this way or that way. I don't get it, so I just give up. Where would we be today if that was their attitude? Where would we be today? Let me just ask you, how often is this your attitude? Deep down inside. If that's your attitude, what's that a sign of? You follow this bunny trail down. If you're looking for the sin behind the sin, the issue below the issue, it's an issue of unbelief. It's that I don't believe that God can do the impossible. Can you imagine the catastrophic outcome of, of ignoring God in this moment? Now, thankfully, this time Israel does listen. Um, sometimes they get it right, right? It's like you and me. Sometimes we do get this right. By the grace of God, because good Reformed people say that all the time. For the glory of God is the other thing you need to attach to the end of that, too. All true and very good things. I'm not joking just to joke. Um, thankfully, Israel does get this right. They, they listen. They got their ears open. They desire to understand the Lord. 
And I think in this passage, you can, you can kind of witness, you can almost feel, I think as I study it, the palpable excitement in the air as God begins to speak to Joshua. And then Joshua turns around and speaks to the people. Uh, the message that we see in verses 7 through 13, um, it's a message that uh, helps God's people understand a little bit more of God's character. Okay? So if you're looking at this, um, you notice that for Joshua, uh, there's a promise that God makes to him. And the promise in these verses is that God is going to make him great, just like Moses. And that's a, that's a pretty sweet moment if you ask me, okay? I don't know who you're thinking of in your head that's like highly spiritual, that's done some really massive things for the Lord, and you're like, man, I just kind of wish I could be even a little bit like that person. And then God steps down and he's like, yo, I'm going to make you just like that person. That's a moment. That gets my attention. It's the promise to Joshua. It's going to help Joshua fill Moses' massive shoes of leadership. Now, uh, following that in verse 9, I, I love Joshua's words. Um, most of you might even get a giggle out of this, but that's a serious thing. I love his words in verse 9 where he says, Come here. And listen to the words of the Lord your God. That's really um, fantastic. Uh, it, it, that, that's, I mean, every preacher would love that moment, right? Joshua's like, hey, come here. I want you to hear the words of the Lord your God. Now, there's something interesting about just the, the play on words there. It's not, hey, come here, everybody. Sit down at the table. Sit down in your row. Open your Bibles. I want you to hear the word of my God. It's, I want you to hear the words of your God. I think Joshua is intentionally, or even unintentionally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, saying something. This is your God who is speaking through the mouth of a really imperfect human. And you talk about the humility there that it must take to say that. So these words from Joshua to the people of Israel, I think they're, they're spoken like a faithful preacher. I think these words um, from Joshua, man, they're spoken like a faithful preacher, right? He's standing before the people. He's unflinching in what he has to say. Imagine the faith and the resolve that it takes for Joshua to do this. Now, Joshua's message to them is simple. It's instructive. It's descriptive. He instructs Israel how to cross over the impossible. And he describes how the Lord will lead them through that impossibility. He also explains to them that they're going to know that the Lord is with them because God is going to miraculously defeat a list of seven violent, destructive enemies. Um, and not to mention the promise that uh, God makes to make the water part just like the Red Sea. I mean, at the end of the day, this whole story is pointing ahead to what God is going to do in Jesus at the cross, where he defeats our enemies once and for all Satan, sin, and the grave. The reality of Joshua's name is that uh, you could interpret his name as Yeshua, um, Yahweh. Um, there's an interesting connection there. Joshua is not God in any way. There's only one God. But Joshua is a saving type of man. He's leading Israel into their 
inheritance into their promised land. So as we look at Joshua speaking to the people, we can always make this connection easily all the way forward to the cross and to Jesus, who says, Man, I'm coming so that I can wipe out your enemies. That's the promise you have from me. And then you might notice, if you think about the story of Jesus once again, he does just what he says he can do at the cross and the empty tomb. And then what does he do? He ascends to heaven. And what does he say? I'm coming back. I'll be back. And when I come back to get you, I'm taking you to a place where there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. There's not a promise that we're going to be redeemed from that in this lifetime. There is a promise that heaven is what we hope for. So you think about all the impossible things you faced in your life. Those impossible things are placed in your life to reveal to you a God who is more than capable of overcoming that impossibility once and for all at a point in time. That's what this story is meant to reveal to us. The supernatural power and the faithfulness of a God who overcomes the impossible for the good of His children and the fame of His own name. So they've been prepared to face the impossible. They're spending some time understanding how God moves in the midst of the impossible. And finally, what we see here is that the Israelites get to experience God moving in the midst of the impossible things that they are surrounded by. <coughs> I've alluded to this all along this morning, um, and most of you would probably uh, instinctively get this, that God doesn't show up every time something bad happens in the way that we want Him to. God, God does not show up in every single circumstance to do the impossible thing that I want him to do. Um, and, it, and it makes it really hard for us, doesn't it? Does anybody ever like, just walk in that tension? But thank God we, we get to hear stories of where he does do the impossible. The ones that we heard this week from the Nelson family. Mark, you're here with us this morning. That's a pretty impossible, miraculous thing you get to experience and see the Lord do. But we all have been alive long enough to know that God doesn't always do that. That's the fallacy of the prosperity gospel that, hey, listen, you don't have to listen to prosperity teachers on TV to be um, totally consumed somewhere deep within you with a prosperity gospel that if I do right, blessing will follow. I mean, most of the Old Testament is, is chock full of, a, of words that actually surprisingly help that theology out. Um, of course, if you cut and dice them and take them out of context, for sure, right? Most of us deep down inside do believe that way. Why? Because we live in a world that shapes us every day in a rewards-based system. You do the right thing, you get good things. That's the basis of the prosperity gospel. So you don't have to buy into and listen to prosperity gospel preaching to already have that being preached to your soul. We just, we live in that already. And I would say that America itself is probably one of the ripest places where that is growing. Why? Ask yourself that question and think about that for a little while. There's a reason for that. 
You know, at the end of the day, God doesn't show up in every circumstance to do the impossible things that we want Him to do. But I want to ask you this question. Uh, what about experiencing the impossible things that you don't see God doing in the midst of facing the impossible things that you can see? That's a bit of a brain teaser for you. But what about just simply noticing, spending time long enough to ask the Lord, what impossible things are you doing in the invisible realm in my life that I haven't even noticed yet because I'm so consumed by and focused on this one physical thing that you haven't done for me yet. This is, that's a struggle. Struggle for me. I don't know if it is for you. What if we asked him that question? Like, listen, maybe, maybe God doesn't heal the impossible marriage you're in. What do you do then? Maybe God doesn't fix the impossible job loss. Maybe God doesn't remove the impossible health concern or knock down the impossible financial barrier or change the impossible relational loneliness that you live with or any other impossible physical circumstances. Maybe God doesn't come in and miraculously remove those things. Have you, have you stopped recently in the midst of that and just witnessed and, and become thankful for the, the really impossible spiritual fruit that God is producing in your life in the midst of the impossible physical difficulty that you're experiencing? Might be a place that we could go to. The final portion of our text in verses 14 through 17 is simply a recounting of the actual historical event that took place on the day when the Lord split the waters at the Jordan River so that his people could cross into the promised land. Now you think of this picture, there's one city named Adam way over here, and there's one city named Jericho over here, and you're standing on the brink of the water that's been overflowing its banks, and you're just wondering, like, is God really going to come through on this one? And then suddenly, all the water stops, and it just piles up, and you're looking at this massive wall of water as it piles up against an unseen, invisible force. And then on the other side, it just kind of drains away, right? That's, that's what's happening. It just drains away, and then suddenly, the ground is dry. The ground is dry. This is an illustration of what it looks like for the Lord to bring us through eternally deadly circumstances of this life and into the promised land called heaven. That's what this is a picture of. If you haven't stopped long enough to think about the eternal ramifications of what is happening in your life, and you're only living for what's in this life, what you can get, what you can accomplish, I just submit to you that there is something so much bigger than what you have in front of you, and it's called eternity. God literally stopped the water. Commentators are quick to point out that Israel had to have experienced this in a very real and tangible way. I wish I could recreate this for us this morning somehow so that we could experience that in a very real and tangible way, right? You think about Israel as they're crossing over that dry riverbed and they're just looking up at that massive wall of water. What's the thought that goes through your mind? And if God takes his hand away, that water 
just going to come crashing down on me. How many of you struggle with sin? You might not want to call it that. It might make you really uncomfortable. But you struggle with some kind of sin. And you've tasted seasons of victory. I just submit to you that, that those seasons, that's God's hand restraining. That's God doing the thing that you cannot do. You can't do that on your own. Even if you've been following Jesus since you were three days old, you can't stop. The only way you can is if God reaches in and gives you a brand new heart that desires to love Him and then gives you the strength to walk by faith through that death to eternal life. It's the only way it's going to work. So what do you think is impossible? Do you believe that you're impossible to love, maybe? Maybe you believe that uh, it's impossible to overcome that secret sin. Maybe you believe that it's impossible to have the strength and the courage to lead your family, or that it is impossible to heal from the emotional scars that have been left inside of you by someone who hurt you. Uh, Maybe for you, maybe it seems impossible to love your spouse, or to discipline rebellious children, or to be patient with your employer, to be kind to your enemies, or to have joy in the midst of trials, or to be peaceful in the chaos, or to be faithful to the Lord's commands, or to be self-controlled in your cravings. I don't know what it is that you face each day that seems impossible, but I do know one thing. God is the God of doing what seems impossible to us. So I leave you with that question in conclusion once again. What do you think is impossible? Because when I look at Jesus, when I look at the empty tomb, when I look at his work done at the cross, I see a picture of God doing what is absolutely impossible. Listen, miracles are miracles simply because they're not normal. Miracles are miracles simply because they're not normal. Miracles don't happen every day, or at least... We don't see them every day, which I think is the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb because the miracle of the cross and the empty tomb stretches across thousands of years to get to where we're at today. So we look back 2,000 years. We see what Jesus did on that cross as he paid the price for our sin. We see the power of the empty tomb as he rose victorious over our enemies, Satan's sin and the grave. And we see that God did the impossible once and for all, as I said earlier. That picture, you look back through the the outline of this sermon. That picture of the cross and the empty tomb. God doing the impossible. If you face that picture head on, if you seek to understand it, and if you experience it, it will radically transform your life forever as you what? Encounter the God of the impossible. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.
Um, God, I ask that you would come and minister to us, um, maybe in a special way as we close our time. Um, Lord, I, I don't know uh, what impossible circumstances people that are gathered in this place are facing today, but Lord, you do know. So God, I just pray that you would uh, come and do work in and among us. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.